in your Bibles to Psalm 63. We're now going to cover the greatest hits of the 60s. So Psalm 63. It's a relatively short psalm, so let's read it all at once. And then we will come back and, uh, and walk through it a little bit. Again, I'll be reading this morning from the King James Version, so don't let that throw you. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee, my flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Thy power and Thy glory as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall upon the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Every one that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Again, we have in Psalm 63 a superscription that is a part of the Hebrew text, the, our, our Holy Bible. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So he gives us the historical context for this psalm. And it is when he was in the wilderness. Now there were two primary, we have, well, two primary records of David in the wilderness in 1 Samuel. The first time we see him in the wilderness is in 1 Samuel 23 through 24, and this is when he's running from Saul. So one of the options is that he wrote Psalm 63 uh, while he was in the wilderness, fleeing from King Saul. Another option is in 2 Samuel 15:23 and this is when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom. If you remember Absalom attempted a coup and David and and uh, those who followed him left Jerusalem and they went into the wilderness. Um I I tend to think that this is probably uh the context for this psalm simply because uh, in verse 11 of Psalm 63, we have mentioned David refers to himself as the king. In, in 1 Samuel 23, or 1 Samuel 23:24, he wasn't king yet. So I tend to believe that this is probably uh, when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15:23. But this also gives us. Uh, well, we need to look at the, uh, what I call a theological context of this psalm as well. And that really is, is two parts. One is this issue of worship. I mean, worship is a prominent part of this psalm. Now, we have to be careful, though, that we don't import our notion of worship 
of new covenant worship onto them. Their worship was isolated and, and, and only God only ordained it in one place. And that was Jerusalem. If you, if you read through the Old Testament, you see one of the things that, they were, that, that God constantly confronted his people on was all the illegitimate places that they had set up for worship. There was only one place that was established for worship. Uh, remember, uh, for those of us, especially on Wednesday nights, we've gone through the Old Testament, we're talking about the shrines on the hills. Many of those were pagan shrines, but some of those were just simply, it was expedient. You see, the, the, to, rather than making the trip to Jerusalem, it was just expedient. You know, just let's just let's just worship on Saturday night instead of Sunday. No, I'm, whatever. There was only one place they could worship. What a privilege we have, where we can worship anytime, any place, and we should be worshiping anytime and any place. They couldn't. They couldn't. In fact, if um, if you look at, even in John 4, you don't have to turn there. Uh, remember Jesus met the woman at the well? Remember what she said to him? She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So even then, that was the established place for worship. So when we look at this psalm, um, the theological context is, is one of worship, but remember, then it was only one place, namely Jerusalem. The second issue, though, is, is the whole prominence of wilderness. When we look at our Bibles, we see the, wild, the wilderness plays a prominent role or prominent place in the Bible. We see that, the, the, that oftentimes wilderness is a place of testing and a, and a place of judgment. Uh, if you remember Israel, uh, God delivered them from Egypt. Uh, he took them to Mount Sinai, gave them uh, his covenant, his covenantal rules and stipulations. And they went up uh, to the border of, uh, of the promised land of Canaan. And they sent in the, remember they sent in the ten spies? Uh, and because of their unbelief, they wouldn't enter. So God had them do what? They wandered in the wilderness. It was a place of testing and judgment. Wilderness, oftentimes, God is used as a, as a place of pruning. Or, or, or New Covenant, New Testament, a place of discipline. Oftentimes, God takes us through a wilderness period of our lives to prune us, to test us, to discipline us. But we also see the wilderness... It is oftentimes a place of training. Does anyone, any, especially Wednesday night folks, any man come to mind that where the wilderness was a place of, of training? Moses. Uh, this was a time of preparation. The, the, that, those 40 years that, that Moses spent uh, shepherding sheep in the wilderness were crucial, was a crucial time of training, of, of preparing him for his task of shepherding the people of Israel and to lead them out as sheep uh, out of Egypt. So the wilderness is prominent in the Bible as a place not only of testing and judgment, but a place of of training, of of preparation. Third, though, a very prominent role of wilderness in the Bible is a place of evil. It's often associated with, with, with evil and temptation. We see this in the life of Jesus when he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. 
And this we have a, a place of provocation that, the, that oftentimes we find ourselves in, in a wilderness where we are, we are provoked to sin as well. Well, the question is, in what sense is David using this motif, this wilderness motif in his psalm? And I would suggest that, that David creates a, a fourth option, and that is that, that his, his geographical setting, his physical setting of wilderness, that the wilderness becomes a metaphor of, of, of where he was spiritually. So in other words, this is a, a spiritual metaphor of dryness. Of emptiness. Now look with me again at verse 1. O God, thou art my God. Early or earnestly will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh longs for thee. And here it is. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. He's using the characteristics of wilderness as a description of his soul. For us, testing, training... Temptation. Some have called these the dry times. What do we do when we are faced with the dry times? Well, I think uh, David gives us some, uh, some ideas of how we might respond to... The, when we find ourselves in this, this metaphorical wilderness where, where our soul just is dry and lifeless and empty. Well... The first thing he tells us in verse 1 is to seek God earnestly. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. Uh, This is a word that that could mean, most of the time, in most contexts, it means early. So many have taken that to mean, which means if you rise early, it means you're earnest. So early or earnestly, I will Seek after you. He says, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you where there is no water. Early will I seek. Present tense, I will continue to seek you. Now, there, there are three different types of Christians. And maybe we could put air quotes on Christians. One is, is what we would call nominal Christians. These are, these are Christians probably in name only or, or cultural Christians. We see this a lot in the Bible Belt. Uh, Excuse me, if you go to Hobbes, although technically it's really not Bible Belt, every, everybody would probably call themselves a Christian. Um, but, they're, but they're Christian in, in name only. There are others who, who, I guess, follow Jesus. You would say spiritually follow Jesus, but they follow him at a distance. Um, they're, they're not earnest. They're not zealous. Uh, as we used to say, they're really not that sold out. They, they're just, they keep Jesus at, at arm's length and, and, and keep him at a distance. But the third kind is really, I think, what David is describing here. Is those who cleave to him, who enjoy daily communion with him. These people don't have to be prodded. The... the, the the believer, the Christian that David is describing in Psalm 63 and will continue to describe is not one that has to continually be prodded to read their Bible and continually encouraged to, to be in prayer. But they enjoy daily communion with Him. When we find ourselves in a dry and thirsty land, we are to seek God earnestly. I want you to notice 
a tone of desperation. Did you pick up on that? Let me read it again. O God, thou art my God. Early I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee. My, my flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land. There, there is a sense of desperation, of thirsting, of yearning. No one can do that for you. That has to be something that comes from within you. So we have to ask ourselves, do we seek God earnestly? Must we be continually prodded to pray, to study God's Word, to worship, to fellowship? The people that David describes know that only God can satisfy the thirst of their soul. And it's interesting, he talks about his soul and his flesh. Um, I don't know that we need to make a great deal of of that difference and and try to slice that too thin. I think the the image is simply all of his being. We only really truly seek him when we seek him with our entire person. Notice, though, this is not a groping after God in the dark. This is not hide and seek. When he says, I seek you, it's not like God's running around hiding and he's, he's trying to find God. No, this image is one of, um, of a, let's just say, a spouse who, who is missing their other spouse and, and they are trying to find out where they are. This is not a groping after God. God's not hiding from us and we have to try to find him. But David literally, in, in, in a literal wilderness, running from his son Absalom, in this cheerless and parched environment, no doubt a great deal of hardship, confusion, feeling overwhelmed, all these things merely created a greater thirst for God and for his presence in David's life. And he responded biblically. In other words, wilderness can be a source of greater worship in relationship with him. Wilderness has a, the, the, these wilderness times has a way of stripping us of our defenses. All of the false things that we seek satisfaction from, that don't satisfy And they force us to seek Him earnestly. I learn, first of all, that we are to seek God earnestly. That vibrant worship of God is driven by desperation. Listen, um, maybe one of the reasons why we see such, such vibrant worship in other places of the world is because they're more desperate for God than we are. They are driven by spiritual desperation. So we seek God earnestly. But number two, we praise God joyously. Look at me in verse two. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands to thy name. It's interesting, when we look at the worship uh, in the Old Testament, in, in, in many ways our worship is so different, isn't it, than, than what seems to be described here. 
what, what, we'll have audience participation. What are some of the things that come to mind when we hear worship in the Old Testament? What? Offerings. Okay, offerings. Sacrifices, offerings. What else? Incense. Dancing. All different kinds. Yeah, all different kinds of instruments. And what else? Lifting up their hands. We see that here. Shouting. It's interesting to me how we how oftentimes we we um, we write that off as merely cultural. Now, I'm not suggesting that on any given Sunday, every Sunday, we need to do all of that, or we should be doing all that. But I think that those things are a reflection of a joyous praise. I don't think David thought church was boring. His spiritual thirst was quenched when he praised God joyously with other believers. We had some people who... who um, were thinking about coming here, and uh, and they decided to go elsewhere. And one of the reasons they gave me is they said they wanted to be in a place where they could sing and no one could hear them sing. And on one level, I get that. I mean, I understand that. Um, on the other hand, uh, when we become so self-conscious that we're more concerned about how we sound to other people when we sing, and I would suggest to you that maybe, maybe our worship is off a little bit. David worshipped God with other believers, and he praised God joyously. Look at, let's look again at this language. Um, to see your power and your glory. This is probably not some kind of visual manifestation, but probably an experience. He experienced God's glory and God's power when he worshipped God. He said, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands. This, this joyous pursuit. It's interesting that martyrs down through the ages and today even, that, that their worship is, is, is vibrant and joyous because they are, in fact, so desperate. But I want to pick up on this whole, and Tom mentioned it, Verse 4, he says, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. This is a very common gesture. And and gestures, by the way, are very important in worship, are they not? Um, It's interesting, of of all the postures that we... Let me ask you this. What kind of postures do we see in in Old Testament worship? Kneeling? Prostrate? And that's with an R, prostrate, um, standing. Anything else? The one thing, the one thing we do not see, the one posture we do not see, and certainly the Old Testament or New Testament, as far as we know, is seating, sit, being seated. Now maybe that's they just culturally they didn't have chairs. That would explain it. But there's something about raising of hands. Now, I don't want to make this a test of spirituality or a test of orthodoxy. Um, but it's interesting to me um, how common this was in Old Testament worship. 
and, and it probably was both literal and symbolic. It, it, when they offered their hands, when, when they lifted their hands, it, it was a way of saying, my hands are clean. I'm hiding nothing. I'm not hiding anything from God. It was a way of saying, God, I'm, I'm not keeping anything from you. I, I am open before you and I offer you all of who I am. And it's interesting, many of us are, are hesitant to do that. Probably because of the abuses. What I, maybe we shouldn't judge uh, at this point, but um, sometimes we see maybe some abuses of, of some of these gestures. But, but it's a shame that, that, that we allow um, maybe those who are, 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 are less genuine with it or, or per, perceived less genuine with it to keep us from that, that, that important gesture in worship. I fear that oftentimes it's more pride than anything else. It, it, there is something vulnerable about raising your hands, especially when you raise your hands and nobody else is. It, 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 there's something vulnerable about that posture. I think it, it is, a, it, in a sense, an abandonment of self-control. And what I mean by that is, is not controlling ourselves, not being out of control, but releasing control. If, does that make sense? God, I want you in control of my life. There was, there, there was, there was a sense of, of, of joyous praise, of abandonment. That David, we, we see David when he entered Jerusalem, he danced. And Michael, his wife, said, you've embarrassed me. What an embarrassment you are. Now, again, I don't think that these are meant to be um, models that we to follow all the time. But I think in principle, if nothing else, when we worship, do we praise God joyously? Do we worship him without, without, with abandonment? When David was in this wilderness, he not only earnestly sought after God, not only was it a, a, uh, an, a, an abandonment of praising God joyously, but number three is he reflected on God continually, this, this notion of reflection. And it's interesting, in verse 5, he begins with the conclusion or the result, and then he moves towards what creates it. It's almost as if he goes backwards, and he says... Uh, in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. So that, he says, so really you could talk, really verse 6, 6 goes before verse 5. When I remember thee upon my bed, and when I meditate on thee in the night watches, then my soul will be satisfied as marrow and fatness. So he begins with the conclusion. He begins with the result. And he says, I will be satisfied as I do one thing. And what is that one thing? Verse 6, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Reflection. It's interesting, this may be one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines as I, as I thought about it. How often do I meditate and reflect on God 
Again, this may be because of, of we, we, we normally equate meditation with what? Eastern religions. This, is, this meditation is not Eastern religion meditation. Eastern religion in all its forms is basically an empty, to empty the mind. Um, it, it is to achieve an altered state of consciousness by emptying the mind. That's not, that's not biblical meditation. And sadly, many so-called Christians are engaging in this kind of meditation. But that's not what he's talking about. Because again, look at what he says. There is a, an object to our meditation. What, is he, what does he say? He says, I remember you. I meditate on you. So God is the object of our meditation. Not emptying our mind. Not, not emptying our mind and trying to listen for a voice. But a conscious reflection and meditation on God. And I, I, I really looked at three things here in terms of it relates to God. Is number one, the person of God. We meditate on the person of God and in his many attributes. What are some of his attributes? Holiness. Faithfulness. Righteousness. All powerful, all knowing. We are to meditate on Him, on His attributes, and all that He is. When we're in the wilderness, we reflect and we meditate on, on, on the person of God. But we also meditate on the Word of God. So we, 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 we don't just meditate on the person of God, we meditate on the promises of God. And, and it's interesting how oftentimes when we are out of God's Word... That we experience, for the most part, wilderness times. And it's often when I get back into reflection and meditation on the Word of God and the promises of God that my soul, in fact, is satisfied. I meditate on God, on the person of God, His attributes, on the Word of God, His promises, on the acts of God, His faithfulness. Not just His faithfulness to His, to his people in the Bible, but it's faithfulness to me. I recount the many times that God has come through for me and for my family. I reflect on that. I, I, I meditate on that. I, I focus my thoughts not on fear, not on despair, but on the fact that God has been so faithful. I meditate. I reflect. And in fact, he says... When I do that, my soul will be satisfied. As with marrow and fatness. That this complete satisfaction, completely and absolutely satisfied. But he throws in verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Again, he's, he's reflecting on the past accounts of all the times that God has been faithful to him. And we read all the times God was faithful to David. And in verse 8 he says, My soul follows hard after you. What are some of your other translations? Uh, verse 8. ESV, I think, says what? Clings? Who has ESV? Clings? What about New American Standard? Clings? <clears throat> One of the reasons I chose King James this morning is because I like the way 
they translated this verb. Clings is, I guess, is adequate, but King James gets at it. This is used in three other places, and I want us to look at that. The first one is Judges 20.45. Turn to Judges 20.45. Actually, you know we're going to start in 44. And there fell of Benjamin 18,000 men, and all these were men of valor. And they turned, and they fled toward the wilderness unto the rock of Rimmon. And they, and they gleaned of them in the highways 5,000 men. And here it is, the same word, pursued hard after them unto, unto Gidim and slew 2,000 men. of they, they pursued hard after them. Um... 1 Samuel 14, 22. 1 Samuel 14, 22. Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. Same verb, same word. One other place is Jeremiah 42.16, but it's the same thing. It, it, it is this, to pursue hard after. So when David says, my soul clings to him, as I reflect and as I meditate on the person of God and on the word of God and on the acts of God, I, I hotly pursue him. It is a relentless pursuit. It is a consuming pursuit. And it's interesting that in the midst of this reflection and meditation and this pursuit of God, this spiritual pursuit of God, that he says in verse 8, Thy right hand upholdeth me. And this is metaphor for sustaining. The right hand was a, was a symbol of power and strength. He, he, God, I, I experience your sustaining strength. God is not running away. Uh, um, in all these contexts, the verb is used for someone who was running away. God's, the image is not God running away. David is saying, I spiritually pursue hard after you, and, and while I am doing that, you are there and you are sustaining me by thy right hand. He reflected on God continually. Finally, he trusted God unreservedly. Look at verse 9. He says, But those who seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Every one that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lives shall be stopped. David is un unreservedly confident that his enemies will be destroyed. This is what we call righteous vindication. He doesn't shy away from this kind of language. He's not embarrassed by it. 
I mean, he, he looks at this future hope that the king will rejoice in God. Th- those who seek my life will be thwarted. They will be destroyed. Not in him winning the battle, but God winning it for him. The, the, this notion of vindication, that God's people will be vindicated. And it's interesting to me that those people, those Christians who reject the legitimacy of this kind of condemnation probably have never fought against evil or even pursued righteousness for that matter. You see, it's only when we pursue righteousness and when we pursue diligently and earnestly pursue God with all of our being that we experience this kind of trust in Him undeservedly and when we are not embarrassed by this notion of biblical vindication. In fact, uh, let's look quickly at Psalm 52. Why boasteth thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue devises mischief like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good, and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever, for he shall take you away and pluck you out of the dwelling place and root you out of the land of the living. Selah. Pause and think about that. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made, made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. And I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. I would suggest, suggest to us that unless we are pursuing hard after God, unless we are seeking him earnestly, and, and as we rejoice in him joyously, then we will have this notion of confident trust, unreserved trust in Him, and not just that, but righteous vindication of our enemies. I mean, what does Paul say to Timothy? All who desire to live... Does he say all that desire to live will be persecuted? What does he say? Second Timothy. Second Timothy 3. What does he say? There's one very important part Second Timothy 3, verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When we desire to live godly, when we live our lives faithfully, we should expect persecution. Not flee from it, not avoid it, but expect it. But at the same time, we trust God unreservedly. If we pursue goodness, we will be persecuted. It's inevitable. But we don't lose. We will be vindicated. What do we learn from Psalm 63? Seek God earnestly. Praise Him joyously. Reflect continually. Meditate on Him continually. And just trust Him unreservedly. But I guess the conclusion for me is this. The, the, the degree of my worship of God will be in direct proportion to the degree of thirst in my soul. The degree 
of my worship in all of its various forms will be in direct proportion and only be in proportion to the degree of thirst in my soul. If my worship is bland, if it's not earnest, if I'm not praising joyously, then that maybe is an indication of the condition of my soul. So God uses wilderness times to draw us closer to him. Wilderness is a place of drawing, of of calling us to him, to seek him earnestly, to praise him joyously, to reflect on him continually, and to trust him unreservedly. That's our wilderness. What about our worship? I return to John chapter 4. Remember I read verse 20 when the Samaritan woman said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is a place we're at to worship. Jesus said this to her. Believe me, the hour cometh when we shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Jerusalem's no longer the really the holy land. Where's the holy land? Any place where God's people meet to worship. This is holy land. Ye worship what ye know not. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And then in Chapter 10, verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. What does he say? We draw before the throne of grace. Continually draw before the throne of grace. Our, our worship is not limited to a place. This is a, this is a place where we corporately worship. But our worship is not limited to a place anymore. We can draw before the throne of grace wherever we go. Wherever we are. The degree of my worship of God will be in direct proportion to the degree of thirst in my soul. Let's pray. And if someone could get Vicki, I'd appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, again, um, I just just, uh, love those words. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. And thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Father, your love for us is of more value to us than life itself. And our lips shall praise thee, and we shall bless thee as long as we live. In a dry and weary land, we seek you earnestly. We praise you joyously. We, we meditate on you continually. And we trust you unreservedly. O God, thou art our God. Early we will seek thee. Our souls thirsteth after thee. Our flesh longeth for thee. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Would you please stand?